you've landed on the Lonely Diplomat podcast and wherever you are in the world from. Okay, these are all K capitals and bear with me because there are a lot of them. So wherever you are in the world from Kabul, Kampala, Kathmandu, Khartoum, Kiev, Kigali, Kingston, Kingstown, Kinshasa, Kuala Lumpur and Kuwait City and all places in between, welcome. I'm Phil McAuliffe and I'm The Lonely Diplomat. My work reconnects diplomats and those living the diplomatic life to themselves and the world around them. This is done through my website, thelonelydiplomat.com. And on that site, you'll find a blog, this podcast and other products and services all designed to help you live your diplomatic life. So those products and services can be seen on my website. And services include coaching for diplomats and those living the diplomatic life designed to help you in your individual unique circumstance live your best diplomatic life. Other services include speaking services for our employing agencies. And there's also details of upcoming webinars. So make sure that you bookmark thelonelydiplomat.com and make it your go-to place for all things relating to your diplomatic life. On this episode of The Lonely Diplomat Podcast, which is episode 18, we're going to be talking about anxiety and living this diplomatic life specifically anxiety and being a diplomat. Now, this was the topic of a blog post written by one of my fantastic audience members. And it was written anonymously. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But if you haven't read it, make sure that you go to the blog on my website. And there's going to be a link to the post in the description for this episode. I loved, I loved this blog post. It was the kind of post that I just knew, knew would resonate with so many readers around the world. The reason that I loved it, it's because it was raw, it was vulnerable, it was tremendously authentic. Let's face it. We don't talk about many aspects of this diplomatic life at all well. We don't talk specifically, we don't talk very well about the not-so-shiny side of this diplomatic life well. And if we do, we can very quickly go into gossip. We can go into discussions that aren't actually healthy for us in the medium and long term. Not this. This blog post was particularly, well, it was just, I want to find something different to say to you, listener, than than simply just awesome. Because I, I know that I say awesome a lot, but this really, well, you've heard it, like I'm at a loss for words to, to describe it adequately. Simply, this post just 
encapsulated beautifully what it is like to be a high-performing diplomat who also needs to manage clinical anxiety. And we all can see ourselves in the lived experience of this reader. Part of the beauty of this post was it described the situations of arriving in a place, wanting to do well in a new job, wanting to do the job really well, all the while carrying around an additional burden, an additional weight of a mental illness. Now, one of the things that really struck me about this post was the absolute strength, the absolute grace that the reader has in managing, managing their anxiety while still being a diplomat. And it's not either or, as we fear might be the case if we have any kind of ailment, condition or illness, physical, mental or emotional, that we fear can actually stop us from being seen and actually being great at our job. If anything, the author's anxiety makes them a better diplomat. I'm really quite confident that this, that the author would much rather not have an additional burden of managing their anxiety while doing a full-on job and living their diplomatic life. But the thing that I loved about one of the many things that I loved about this was that it was being welcomed, it being anxiety, it being the condition of anxiety, of clinical anxiety, was being celebrated, was being embraced within them and accepted as part of what made them them. And to me, that appeals to me so deeply. It appeals like, you can't see this at all, but I'm like, I'm, I'm both hands are on my heart. It appeals to me right here. And I just know I know that so many diplomats live with anxiety. And some days when you live with anxiety, some days are way better than others. And the days where it feels like anxiety is on top of you, it can feel that nothing will ever change. You will be feeling anxious forever. You will be feeling exactly that way forever and then on the days when you're on top of your anxiety and you don't know you forget that you're anxious and and you're prone to anxiety you have an anxiety condition that you feel that no it will it won't happen again and um it, it can completely slip from your mind that you need to manage the manage the condition all the time now, what I loved, I'm saying this a lot, I just loved the whole, part of the whole blog. 
one of the parts that spoke to me was that we can still be great at our job and have an illness. In this instance, it's a mental illness. We can't see that this person has anxiety. It can be hidden behind the masks. But if you have, you know, chronic pain, physical pain, then we can also mask that. We can hide, you know, the the debilitating migraines, the bad back, the the knee, the sporting injury, you know, that that resulted in um, our our knees giving out or, or whatever it is. We 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 manage, but we know the effort that it can take to manage those. But we do. We and and we we don't often, unless it's really bad, show signs that an ailment, physical or mental, is preventing us from showing up in our world in at 100%. The blog post also talks about how widespread anxiety is in diplomacy. And here's the thing about anxiety. Here's the thing about mental illness in diplomacy. We don't talk about it. We simply do not talk about it. That needs to change. And I'm going to be spending a lot of the episode talking about how it needs to change. Going back to the blog post, I found myself nodding vigorously at the toxic positivity point that the author wrote about, where if we do open up, if we do share that we're not coping, be it through clinical anxiety, be it through just having a tough day, toxic positivity, while offered in from a place of kindness and wanting to help, can actually really not be helpful at all. And particularly, as the author says, if someone is working through the feelings and, and, and the thoughts associated with anxiety. So saying, you can beat this or, you know, sending you good vibes and, you know, only think good thoughts, you can do it, is not actually helpful. And I call this Instagram philosophy. And there are stationary stores where you can buy notepads and calendars and diaries and all sorts of things with these kind of of positive mantras and positive messages. They're useful to a point until we become, I guess, inoculated to them. But saying them, having them in your, your, your repertoire to comfort someone who is going through, who is having an anxiety attack, is not actually helpful. And this was beautifully described by the author in that blog post. They do go on to give five really great suggestions about how to how how they manage their anxiety. And I love them. I love them. It's you know one of the many things about this this blog post that I love. But it's take your meds, control what you can paying attention to what's around you. So they call this on the countdown where you name five things that you can see, 
four things that you can hear right now, three things that you can feel, two things that you can smell, and one thing that you can taste. This is a great mindfulness strategy. We're going to be talking about mindfulness, just by the by, in a future episode of the Lonely Diplomat podcast, so just keep an eye out for that. And then talking about meditation, and, and specifically in this instance, mindfulness. And finally, know your people. And I often say this in my blogs and in my podcast, is that we need to have people in our corners with whom we know will accept us, do accept us, and will listen to us with empathy, with kindness, will speak with kindness and honesty, and we know that they will not judge. If you manage clinical anxiety or not, you must have people in your corner who know, who you know will not judge you. We need to have at least three. If there's less than three, you may need to open up more. If there's more than, say, five, you're probably a bit too open, perhaps, which is also a form of, ironically, protecting yourself from judgment. At the end of that blog post, I challenged you, my dear reader, to consider two things. I say the first one, which is within ourselves, because we all get anxious, because it's part of the human condition. Some of us experience anxiety in ways that we need help to manage it. And if you do find that you can't switch off anxious thoughts and an ang- uh, a physiological response coming from that, then please seek professional help. And whether you have clinically diagnosed anxiety or not, how do you work through feelings of anxiety or stress? Do you allow yourself you do you allow yourself to experience it? Do you seek support? Do you call upon someone who's in your corner? Or do you just deny it and tell yourself to just toughen up? It's this point that I want to talk quickly about now, about toughening up. And it's a point that I raise, have raised in a couple of blog posts on resilience. And in one of those blog posts, The Lonely Diplomat on Resilience, part two, I talk about big resilience and little resilience. And big resilience is what we can really prepare for. If we are going to uh, a, a, if we are about to start a posting in a dangerous, in inverted commas, place, we can be prepared for a bad security situation. We can be prepared for poor air quality. We can be prepared for all sorts of social, economic, and cultural factors. Um, that can make living in a place very difficult. But it's often the small 
things that test our small resilience. And the blog post makes a perfect point where shampoo can be, <laughs> for, for them, not having the, the known brand of shampoo can actually be momentarily debilitating. It can actually be such a, a huge stress and, and another reminder beyond everything else that's going on in life, another reminder that something that is at was once familiar and we took for granted is no longer there and you know have to spend. And this sounds crazy to say it out loud, but if you if you've lived the diplomatic life, if you're living the diplomatic life or you've lived it, you know exactly what I'm talking about when you spend an insane period of time in various aisles of the supermarket trying to find something that, you know, what at once back home you reached for out of habit. You now have to study labels, decode labels, and that can actually really test your resilience even though we don't want it to. And because we don't want it to, because we feel that we should be able to cope with the fact that toothpaste tastes different in the country where we're posted, or the postal service just operates in a very strange way, or whatever it is, the little things, they're the things that trip us up. Because we can only learn those as we are going along in our lives. And we can deny those and feel bad within ourselves for having them affect us. So we ignore them. We feel that we should be able to handle them. That's actually dangerous, I contend, because it's really important to acknowledge those little factors. And it, by acknowledging, I don't mean that you need to get 10 of your closest friends around and say, oh my, you know, the, I can't believe that I can't get my toothpaste here in this place. It could just be, you know, a little raise of the eyebrow in the supermarket and go, huh, I didn't actually realize that this would get to me, but here I am, you know, feeling upset that this is, that, that this is different. And sometimes that can be enough. Sometimes that could be enough. The simple pause and acknowledging that something has tested your little resilience. Sometimes, while the shampoo, while the toothpaste, while the whatever, the little thing that is testing our resilience, tests our resilience, sometimes it's not about the shampoo. It's not about the toothpaste. It can actually be a clue that there is a bigger, wider issue at play. And it's an invitation, perhaps, to dig into what has, why something has tested you. And if that's the case, you might need help working through why you've been tested, why the toothpaste has tested you in such a way and elicited that kind of response within you. Seek help. Seek the advice of a counsellor. Seek the advice of a professional. Indeed, a coach can help with that. 
and help you go through a process of digging in to why you've experienced that response. I can help with that. If this is something that you want to explore further, please go to thelonelydiplomat.com forward slash services and arrange a free consultation with me. On resilience, I want to say one thing. In many of our employing agencies, I fear that the concept of psychological resilience in diplomats has been perverted, has been hijacked to mean that we must, as those living the diplomatic life, endure almost unendurable amounts of stress, unendurable amounts of anxiety all the time. We must be able to, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, be ready to deliver superhuman amounts of work in impossible deadlines and to do it with a smile on our face and a whistle on our lips. Because we live in fear, and I write this in my book, we live in fear of the phrase, are you not resilient enough for a diplomatic posting? Because those who are not resilient do not get a diplomatic posting. Those who can't handle the stresses involved with a diplomatic posting are not found, at least in many agencies, are not found suitable for a diplomatic posting. And this is entirely fine. But what we find is that in some instances, and I don't want to say many, but I fear it could be many instances, resilience as a concept has been weaponized and hijacked to use as a tool against us, potentially to ensure compliance, ensure that whatever, just get the work done. You know, I don't really care at the end of the day about how it's done, just get it done. And because the resilience mixes with our ultra-competitive workplaces, that can actually be a really toxic mixture where our drive meets the perverted definition of resilience. And we just keep on going and going and going and going until we stop, until we break, until we get sick, be that a physical illness or indeed a mental illness. And because we fear not being resilient, we do not say anything because resilient people who aren't resilient again don't get postings no employing agency will have that in on their websites no employing agency will have that stated openly in the hr materials about going on a diplomatic posting but perception is reality so if we want the reality to be where resilience is actually t- 
taken back to its original meaning around psychological resilience where we flex during times of where it's needed and are given time and space to spring back to form again resilience is the flex and the spring back to form until we are able to safely and without the fear of judgment and without the fear of adverse career prospects for us, the situation won't change. We need to take back resilience into its original definition and how the experts outside of our own organizational cultures in our employing agencies actually interpret and what they mean by the term psychological resilience. We need to take that back. In many agencies around mental health, we need to have kind and honest conversations. And like many of you, I have been part of, indeed, I have led conversations about the need for all staff to have, to be aware of their mental health, to ask for help if they need it. Indeed, give the phone number for counsellors that people can call um, uh, if they need it. And these conversations are important. They're needed and they're incredibly good at raising awareness. But when they start and end in the second person and in the third person, their usefulness is limited. So when those conversations are only about you, you all need to make sure that you are having a break. You all need to make sure that you are taking your leave, that you're leaving on time when you can, that you are getting outside at lunchtime for at least 15 minutes for a walk, that you are just, you know, walking the long way to the kitchen to get your coffee or tea. Um, a couple of times a day. When that conversation stays in the you and the he or the she or the they, those conversations quickly go into platitudes. Here's my second challenge arising from that awesome blog post. Can you, can you have those conversations in the first person. Deliberate dramatic pause there <laughs> because I feel that many of you may have just gone, oh, I probably had so many listeners with me when I was talking about, you know, the importance of having these conversations about mental health and mental well-being in the office when they were in the second and third person because we all, we've likely all had them and given them. But when I talk about 
bringing it into the first person probably just threw yourself back from the speaker and it's like ooh ooh I'm not sure about that I contend that while it is terrifying because we fear judgment we fear the judgment of ourselves as much as if not more than the judgment of others we will find these vulnerable conversations terrifying but I love this from Dr. Brene Brown who says that we find vulnerability as a weakness in ourselves but a strength in others Imagine, imagine how the dynamic of a mental health and a mental well-being in the workplace and outside of the workplace as you live the diplomatic life. Imagine the power of the conversations if we could speak freely in our first person. If we could talk about mental illness and mental health with the same ease and and freedom from judgment if we were to say that we had a cold or had a headache or an upset stomach or a sore leg and we could say that we were feeling stressed we were feeling we were working through feelings of anxiety can you imagine way that that conversation would change to make it okay to have a bout of a mental illness that with treatment can mean that you're back on deck very quickly and and in a kind and supportive environment similarly from a well-being perspective can you imagine a conversation that turns into the first person about mental well-being as we can talk with such ease about physical well-being that getting out for a walk going to the gym playing a sport um, we know that these are great for us physically so why can't we speak with such ease when we're talking about meditation and saying for example, I meditate at least five minutes a day. I walk outside and find a park bench and sit there for a while and meditate. Could you, in your workplace, have that conversation? You having that conversation, I strongly feel, invites others to have that conversation. Let's others around you know that it is a safe, that you have created a safe space in which to talk about mental, emotional, and physical well-being. That we can talk about mental, emotional, and physical health issues in our workplace. Now, this isn't to say that we would have group therapy sessions. It is simply to say that we are our own best support when it comes to the issues of 
being a diplomat and living this diplomatic life. Having the strength to be vulnerable, to take the conversations around mental health, mental well-being and mental illness in the workplace away from the second and third person and into the first person which creates that space, that environment for others to step into. Can you imagine the power within that? Can you do that in your workplace? Is there a story perhaps that you're telling yourself that you couldn't do that in your workplace? If you found yourself, as I spoke then, nodding and going, yeah, this makes real sense. You can see how speaking openly with vulnerability and authenticity about mental health issues, about mental well-being and mental illness in diplomacy and with those living the diplomatic life. You can see the benefit of it, but feel that you may need some help in creating that environment for those kind and honest but critical conversations to happen. Please reach out to me. I provide speaking services to our employing agencies and groups supporting diplomats and those living the diplomatic life. And my work creates that environment. Indeed, the whole premise of The Lonely Diplomat is to create a safe environment for diplomats and those living the diplomatic life to have those indeed kind and honest conversations about the things that really matter to us. And I could think of fewer topics more important than our own mental well-being, our own mental health, and supporting those of us who have mental illness and bear the burden of that in silence. My work deliberately uses my experience to create that space, to create the safe space for others to open up and share potentially their experience. And my work is designed to supplement, to augment the services already provided by in-house counsellors or by contracted counsellors that our employment agencies may use. If this is something that you'd like to explore further, please reach out to me by sending me an email to admin at thelonelydiplomat.com or going to my website, thelonelydiplomat.com forward slash services. And let's have a chat. That's all I wanted to say in this episode. If you have any feedback for me, please send me an email to admin at thelonelydiplomat.com. If you like this episode, please give it five stars on the service through which you're listening now and share the episode with your friends and family. If you feel that I could improve something, please tell me. This episode was provided to you, like all my episodes of the Lonely Diplomat podcast and blogs on the Lonely Diplomat, at no cost to you. If you like the episode, please show me some love by way of a one-off or monthly financial contribution please go to thelonelydiplomat.com 
forward slash support to learn how. It does sound like you're about to leave. So until next time, be awesomely and humanly you because the world needs more you. All views expressed in this episode are my own, and all sounds are freeware in the public domain. Thanks for listening.